It was the uh, week of March 9th, and everybody was talking about coronavirus. Matter of fact, the news was at a fevered pitch about it. Uh, you couldn't get away from it. It was on Facebook. It was on Twitter. It was on Instagram. It was on television. People were talking about it at work. People were talking about it at school. Everybody was just talking coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. And then things began to shut down. Things began to get canceled. And it was like rapid fire, one thing after the other. And it was hard to keep up with. Uh, parks were shutting down. Games and tournaments canceled. Schools are talking about shutting down. Uh, I'll remember uh, forever that that week I was supposed to be in North Carolina on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, celebrating an event with some friends. But I decided that maybe it was best for me to stay back and try to, you know, assess the situation and see exactly what was going to be going on by the weekend. And on Wednesday and Thursday, I can remember that I was on one phone call after the other. I was talking to friends. I was talking to pastors. I was talking to medical professionals. I mean, it was one call right after the other. And I think I was on the phone hour after hour after hour after hour on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday. And really, to be honest with you, uh, to think about what was going on at that particular time, it was hard to know what to think because everybody ha had a different idea about what was happening and everybody had a different opinion. And at first I was a little snarky about the whole thing and my attitude wasn't the best. And I said, <laughs> we're not gonna shut down. This is the silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. People are losing their flipping mind. This is crazy. And, and then the more people that I talked to, it just became evident to me at one particular moment that the wisest, most responsible, most loving thing that we could do was to shut down. And I remember thinking, man, I, I, I don't want to do this. And I'd never felt so much pressure as an individual. I'd never felt so much pressure as a leader because it was one of those moments in life. And so much of life is like this, but this was that moment in life where all of those moments seemed to have just compounded into one moment in time when there was just not a good way forward. And I was worried and I was scared and I was outside. I was on the phone. I remember with a friend of mine and I was trying to get some advice and asking them what I should do or how I should do it. And, and I just remember saying, I'm just worried. I, I tell you what, I'm worried that if we have church, someone's going to come and get sick. And, you know, the last thing I want to do is anybody come and get sick. And God forbid if something worse than getting sick happens. And then, but at the same time, I'm a little worried that, you know, if I cancel, you know, what are people going to say? Oh, he's a compromiser. Or what a coward, you know. Oh, what kind of fruitcake is he? And, and it just, there was so much stress and so much worry and so much fear. And, and I had that conversation and, and I knew what I had to do. And so I, I walked inside and I walked into the office of Austin, who was the first office I came to, and Zach was in there. And I just looked at him and said, we're going we're gonna to shut it down. And when I spoke, there was so much emotion came out. And my voice cracked and tears came to my eyes. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what in the world? What is going on? And then, so that was on like Thursday, Friday. And then moving into the weekend, that Sunday, March 15th, March 15th was the first Sunday that we were strictly online. We closed all of our campuses and uh, we asked all of you and everybody else join us online this Sunday. And I spoke that Sunday to our faith family and anybody else who watched uh, about what was going on. And this is how I started that message that day. I said this, if it seems like the world is in crisis, if it feels like the world is in crisis, it's because it is. That was 28 weeks ago, uh, a little over six months ago. And in some ways it feels like yesterday, in some ways it feels like five years ago. 
But as I think about what I said 28 weeks ago uh, on our first online weekend, and I think about what's going on in our world, and I look around today, and I just pause for a moment, and I listen, I can't help but thinking, I don't feel like a lot has changed because maybe some things have changed and the narrative has changed and the name of the game has changed and sentiments have changed and we've moved on from other things to some new things. But the one thing that still feels the same is this lingering sense of, of crisis in the air, this, this lingering sense of dread in the air, this, this lingering sense that things are not like they were a few months ago. Something's changed, something's been altered, but it's just, it's just still there, this little, this little nagging sense of crisis. And maybe it's because every day we're inundated with sound bites and images of anger and animus and frustration and violence and hatred and contempt. And it's all day, every day, everywhere we look, it's what we're getting pounded with. And then, you know, you just stop and think for a moment, well, no wonder people are at a state of unrest. No wonder people's emotions are unsettled. No, no wonder people's reactions are coming unhinged. But then you stop and you think a little bit more, and I want you to think about this. This isn't new. You know, we love to blame 2020, and I love all the little online things, and I love turning 2020 into a verb. You know, you, you drive down the road, you see a car totaled, and you're like, man, that car got 2020 Or, you know, your dog has an accident in the living room, and you're like, the dog 2020 in the den, you know, and, and you know, all of that. And it's easy to point at this year as though there's something special about this year, but it's really not this year. A lot of this stuff that we see manifesting in the streets and a lot of the stuff that we see manifesting itself in politics and manifesting itself in culture is a mere after reflection of what was first happening in people's souls. What was happening in the souls of men and women in families. We're seeing the manifestation of belief systems that were adopted months and years and maybe even decades ago. So what we're seeing happening around us, what we see manifesting in the streets and what we see manifesting within politics and within culture and within values and within behavior. It's really just the aftermath of what was first going on in the souls of people. So I don't think it's 2020. Now 2020 may prove to be the tipping point. It, it may have been the year when everything was already leaning and everything was already imbalanced and then 2020 came along and just gave it a little nudge and everything began to fall and the dominoes began to crash into place and maybe we'll look back in a year or five years or 10 years or 20 years and sociologists will say, yes, 2020 was the tipping point of something entirely different. I don't know, maybe it will, maybe it won't be. But I do know that most of what we see happening today is not new and it's not isolated to 2020. Much of this was going on, whether behind doors or in the hearts of people long before 2020 came along. Matter of fact, some really smart people, people smarter than me, people who know more than me, see more than me, study this stuff more than me, before 2020 ever came around, experts were looking at the state of things in our culture saying, there was an epidemic going on before COVID, before March, before 2020, that there was an epidemic at loose in our country, an, epiden an epidemic of mental health crisis, an epidemic that was a mental health crisis. And some were even calling it before 2020, an actual mental health pandemic. I I've been reading about this over the last couple of weeks and these are from some of the most recent, most reputable studies. 
One recent study showed that in this country, 40% of college students, 40% of college students said they were too depressed to function. 60% said they were overwhelmingly anxious. Uh, a recent study is showing that Americans are experiencing an epidemic of addictions, that one out of every two Americans have some type of addiction that's undermining their health. It may be something on the internet, it may be food, it may be sex, it may be alcohol. It's some type of an addiction that they can't get away from, that one in every two people have some sort of addiction that's undermining the quality of their life. 40% of people are saying that they have no meaningful relationships. 20% of people describe themselves as socially isolated before the days of social isolation and social distancing. 20% say they're socially isolated. 50% of people say they have no meaningful in-person interaction throughout the course of any given day. Now listen to this. Depression rates have doubled in the last decade. From 1999 through 2018, the suicide rate in our country increased by 35%. It's the second leading cause. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34. It's the fourth leading cause of death for ages 35 to 54. From 1990 to 2018, the number of people who identify themselves as unhappy, the number of people who, who self-identify as unhappy, it raised 50% in this country. Cynicism is on the rise, pessimism is on the rise. Uh, one expert is quoted to say, in reality, a lot of us are anxious, stressed, unhappy, and numb. By almost any measurable factor, there's a tide of unhappiness that's rising in our culture. Matter of fact, look around, and here's what we see. People's quality of life is falling prey to the circumstances of their life. When we really see what's going on, when you see what you're shown on television and when you hear about what's happening in cities and when you hear about the violence and you hear about the senseless acts of violence against innocent people, when you hear the rhetoric of people, when you see all that's going on, when you see beyond what's going on, what you see is people's quality of life is falling prey to the circumstances of their life. Whatever those circumstances are, that's what we see happening. And this is why I wanted to begin here to close out this series, because it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way for you. It doesn't have to be that way for me. It doesn't have to be that way for us. It doesn't have to be that way for the church. It doesn't have to be that way for followers of Jesus. We don't have to have the quality of our life falling prey to the circumstances of our life. There is a better way. That doesn't have to be your story. It doesn't have to be our story. We don't have to lower our quality of life just because of what's happening in and around our life. Matter of fact, the scriptures offer us a better way. Jesus invites us to a different, better way of life where our quality of life is not a slave to the circumstances of our life. And that's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. This is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. As he writes to some friends living in Philippi, he's incarcerated in Rome. He's writing to them so that they understand what joy is, how to have it, how to keep it, and even how to encourage other people to get it and to keep it. And so he wrote this letter, and this is the letter that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. And, and Paul, he writes 104 verses. Of course, the chapters and the verses were added, added after the fact. So he wrote this originally as a letter, just like you would. 
It would have a beginning, it would have a middle, and it would have an end. And like many of us were taught to write in school, whether an essay or position paper, or we were taught to write a letter, uh, that's basically the form and function of how Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. There's an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And the way that I was taught to write was this, introduction, tell them what you're going to tell them. And then in the body, tell them. And then the conclusion is tell them again what you just told them that you'd already told them that you were gonna tell them. That's basically how you write. And that's basically what you do in a good sermon. That's how you give any good talk. You tell people what you're gonna tell them, then you tell them, and then you remind them at the end what you just told them that you told them in the beginning that you were gonna tell them. That's Paul's writing to the Philippians. So when you read through the, the letter that Paul wrote and it's like we keep coming back to the same ideas and the same threads and the, the same themes, it's because we are. In the first chapter, Paul, he's mentioning so many of the things that he's gonna come back to in chapters two and three, and then in chapter four that we're gonna look at in just a moment, he's revisiting the things that he said in chapters one, chapter two, and chapter three. See, we like to kind of talk about something for one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and just move on because we get bored and we think it's dull. But Paul, he knows how we are, and he knows that a teacher's best friend is repetition. It's not always the audience's best friend, but it's a teacher's best friend. And he keeps on throwing joy in their face because he wants them to think about it. And he wants them to think about it because he wants them to get it. He wants them to understand it because he wants them to live it. And he knows they're never gonna live it unless they think about it and they understand it. So he just keeps on throwing joy in their face so that they can pick it up, look at it, give it some different light, look at it from a different perspective, turn it over, look at it again, think about it in a different way. And so all throughout the letter, it's joy, 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 joy. He'll talk about something else, but then he'll connect it back to joy. And it's, it's like he's saying the same thing over and over again, and it's because he is. It's the theme of the letter. And by the time he gets to chapter four, this is how he starts. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he's already covered this, but he, he wants us to think about this one more time. And he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. And the operative word is always. So let's all say that together. Always. Rejoice in the Lord. How much? Always, no matter what, good times, bad times, hard times, easy times, when things go your way, when things don't go your way, when the ball is in your court, when the ball's not in your court, when you feel like you have some power, when you feel like you're powerless. Rejoice in the Lord always, regardless of circumstances, in spite of what's happening, in spite of what's happening to you, around you, despite the things that you know, can frustrate you, that you disagree with, that, that you would to God would change, but you can't change it, and, and you don't like where things are heading or where you think things are heading. Regardless of all of that, he says, you can have joy. You can find joy in the Lord. And maybe Paul was thinking about the time that he came to Philippi, he started the church there, he got beaten, he was thrown in prison with Silas, and they were bruised and bloodied, but there at midnight in that damp dungeon, what are they doing? At midnight, they're singing. They've decided to have joy even, even in an unfortunate circumstance. And Paul, maybe that's what he's thinking about. But the structure of what he writes in chapter four almost mirrors exactly something that an Old Testament prophet said. And Paul being an Old Testament scholar would have most likely known this. There was a minor prophet by the name of Habakkuk who, who said the same thing along this idea of, you know, rejoice in the Lord no matter what's going on. And this is what Habakkuk said. He said, even though the fig trees have no blossoms 
and there are no grapes on the vines. Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the field and the cattle barns are empty, yet, a little three letter word seems insignificant, but it's not yet. That's the moment that you make the choice. That's the moment that you decide you're gonna stand up when you could lay down. Yet, that's the moment that you're gonna decide I'm not gonna forfeit my joy just because of what's happening. This is the moment that you build up your faith. This is the moment that you encourage yourself. This is the moment that you decide you're gonna move forward when you don't feel like it. You're not gonna quit. That's that moment. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And this is what Paul and Habakkuk both were doing in their own way. He's encouraging the Philippians, he's encouraging you, he's encouraging me to pre-decide that no matter what happens, we're gonna joy in the Lord. To pre-decide that no matter what happens to me, I'm going to joy in the Lord. To pre-decide, no matter what the doctor may say, I'm going to joy in the Lord. To pre-decide, no matter what happens at work, I'm going to joy in the Lord. To pre-decide that no matter what, I am going to rejoice in the Lord. And Habakkuk's point was, joy is not juicy figs. It's not always ripe olives. It's not always grapes on the vines. It's not always wheat in the fields or sheep in the pen or cattle in the barn. You can have joy in the boom and you can have joy in the recession. You can have joy in either place. You can have joy when the doctor walks in and says the scans are clear. But you can also have joy when the doctor walks in and says, we see something and we don't like how it looks. You can have joy when the doctor walks in and says, I've got good news, they're gonna make it. But you can also have joy when the doctor walks in and says, I'm sorry, they're not gonna make it through the night. You can have joy when the boss knocks on your cubicle and says, hey, you got the promotion. But you can also have joy when he passes up your station and goes to someone else and he gives them the promotion. That you've pre-decided that no matter what, whether there's a feast or whether there's a famine, that you are going to rejoice, that I'm gonna rejoice in the Lord. It is a pre-decision. It's a decision that is easier to make if you pre-decide now that no matter what happens then, no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens this afternoon, that you're gonna rejoice in the Lord. And so Paul knows that this all sounds kind of impossible, but his point is this is plausible. This is attainable. You can choose this. You can decide this. And so he, he reiterates himself. He says, I will say it again. Rejoice. You can do this. This is not out there. This is not pie in the sky. This is pie on your table. This is how you've been called to live. This is how you have been equipped to live. This is not about being super spiritual. This is about a choice. This is about chasing after and fighting for and laying hold of joy and refusing to let go of it no matter what tries to pry it from your finger. And again, I say rejoice. I can't tell you enough, Paul would say. I can't repeat myself enough. So no matter what, choose joy. And then he says something that doesn't seem like it fits initially in the context of what he's saying, but it fits perfectly. He goes on and he says, let everyone see that you're considerate in all you do. So what is Paul talking about here? 
And it's like Paul, he's just kind of staccato-like fashion, just saying whatever comes to his mind, but, but his thoughts, though they're quite succinct and though they move from one thing to the other, they're still connected through this thread of joy. And he says, as you're going through life, the good and the bad, and in particular, he's, he's zeroing in on the negative. He's zeroing in on the parts that we don't like, the hard and the painful. He says, you're, as you're going through life and you've predecided in the worst moments and the hardest moments and the darkest moments to have joy, He says, as you go through those difficult seasons, when all hell is breaking loose and so many people have lost their mind, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. As everybody else is falling prey to the circumstances of their life, the quality of their life, the way they treat other people, the way they treat themselves, the way they speak of people, the way they speak to people, all falling prey to the circumstances of their life. He says, let everybody see that you are considerate in all you do. And and the word considerate, uh, it's really an anemic, poor translation from the Greek to the English. And different translations use different words because there's really not a great English word that captures Paul's original word. Uh, most Greek scholars who, who study this say that the word really, it really has about five or six different ideas behind it. It's, it's the idea of being big hearted. Let everybody see that you're big hearted. Let everybody see the graciousness that you extend to others. Let everybody see the love and the mercy and the kindness that you give to people. As everything that's happening around you and to you, don't let it get the best of you where you begin to be a jerk to people just because things are not easy. This is Paul's way of saying, relax, loosen up a little bit. Don't take the bait, don't walk around with an easy trigger, just relax. Instead of letting everybody see that you're ticked off and instead of letting everybody know that you don't like it, instead of letting everybody see that this is really getting to you, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Let them see your big heartedness, even in the most difficult parts of life. Let them see you giving grace, even in the most challenging seasons of life. Show that compassion and let people see it. Put your kindness on the front row and let everybody see it. Don't let life steal from you the willingness and the eagerness to be kind to others. That's what he's saying. When you go through life and life is hard, don't be hard on people just because life is being hard on you. When life has hurt you, don't walk around and hurt people because life has hurt you. Don't do that. Let them see how gracious and how loving and compassionate you are, even in the hardest of days. In other words, he's saying life will be unfair, but you don't have to be unkind. Life will be unfair, but you don't have to be unkind. Life's gonna hurt, but you don't have to hurt people. Life's gonna be hard, but you don't have to be unduly hard on people. Life's unfair, but you don't have to be unkind. And if you want to have joy, if you wanna have joy, now listen, this is where it gets really practical, and I love this passage. Paul says, if you want joy, then develop a discipline of showing kindness to others. This is as relevant as Monday morning, as Tuesday, as Wednesday, as Thursday, Friday. That's why I love the scriptures because the scriptures are so relevant to where we live and to the world we live. Paul says, if you want joy, you should sit down. You've been taught you should read your Bible. You've been taught that you should pray. We've all heard that. But he says, you should adopt a discipline of showing kindness to people. 
That every day you should wake up and maybe think about who are three people that I could show kindness to today? Who are five people that I could show acts of kindness to today? Or maybe four, but I'm gonna leave the last one open for spontaneity. Who can I do something special for? Who can I bless? Who can I say something to? Who can I send a text to? Who can I write a note to? Who can I give a hug to? Kiss somebody on the cheek. Let somebody know, I think you're doing a great job. I want you to know how much I appreciate you. To think about, hey, today I want to do an act of kindness because when you're thinking about doing an act of kindness for someone else, you're not thinking about you. And the scripture is so clear about this, that the most, the most enjoyable life, our best life, our most enjoyable self is when we're not thinking about ourselves. It's when we're thinking about somebody else. Jesus would say it's the greatest life. Why not get up? Why not make it a discipline? Well, it doesn't sound very fun if it's gotta be a discipline. Well, some things that are good for us, we don't like to do in the beginning. And we do them in the beginning out of discipline so later on we can learn to do in love what we didn't wanna do in the very beginning. Why not get up every day and think about three people that you wanna show an act of kindness to? Because if you really want joy, Paul said, that's what you gotta do. I've been trying to do this and, and, and sometimes, you know, it, it feels a little weird, especially, you know, if it's a little spontaneous and, and sometimes have you ever wanted to do something good for somebody, but you were afraid you were going to do something good for somebody in a bad way. So you talked yourself out of doing a good thing for somebody because you're afraid to do it in a bad way. I mean, that's just dumb. I mean, take a shot, take a risk, do it, do something good, even if you don't do it in the best way. So I was in the line at Kroger the other day and I'm not a cash guy, so the coin, coin shortage has not affected me in any shape, form or fashion. I have my little debit card, I know my four digit security code and, and so that's all I need in life. And so I'm, I'm at Kroger, but I opened up my wallet and I forgot that I had, I had some cash and they were big bills. And, and all of a sudden the guy who was, was bagging my groceries, and he was an older gentleman and, and I don't know why I thought that. I just thought, man, you should, you should give him you should give him that bill right there. And, and I was thinking, ah, you know, I don't know. I always feel a little weird when they bag my groceries anyway. I always try to hop in and, you know, bag my own with them. Like I'm kind of we're buddies. Hey, how's it going? You know, I can't give me that. And, and, you know, so I was sitting there thinking, how do you do this? How do you go about this? And, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was getting to the end and, and she was handing me my receipt and, and he was getting the last couple of bags together. And so I, I just, I just froze and I went stupid. And so I, I took that money and I, I, I reached into his apron and I put my hand down his apron and let it go. And, and he kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? Are you trying to take money from me? Are you trying, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't say anything. This is weird. And so I got my buggy and I, I left and, you know, and I, I got outside and I, I, I said, Trevor, you're a moron. You're an idiot. What is, what is that guy thinking you were doing? And, and, and what if he didn't even notice? And, and what if he goes home and throws off the thing or puts it in the washer and he doesn't know that that money's in there? And, I thought, well, do I go back in there and tell him? Hey, sir, I put some money in your apron a moment ago. I just said, no, God, I'm trusting you. I'm leaving. So sometimes it's not always pretty. And even though I thought I could have done it better in retrospect, I'm telling you, show acts of kindness. When you show acts of kindness to somebody, this is what God and Paul knows because this is the thumbprint of God on our life. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when we pursue other people for the sake of doing acts of kindness, it opens the joy and invites joy into our lives. I dare you. I dare you to spend a little bit of your time thinking about people every day that you could do something kind for and maybe show kindness to because in doing it, it will benefit you as well because there's all kinds of research about this and there's more and more research coming out all the time that by showing kindness, you receive 
joy. So Paul, he says, show kindness, let everybody see how big hearted you are. And then he throws this in here. It's like, almost like this doesn't belong either. Remember the Lord is coming soon. It's like, what? Yeah, let everybody see that you do acts of kindness and remember that the Lord is coming soon. It's like, well, Paul, what does this have to do with anything? Because Paul is reminding us what we all know. He's reminding us about the brevity of life. Life is short. Jesus is either gonna come back and we're gonna go be with Jesus or we're gonna die and then we're gonna go meet Jesus. Either way, this life is short. You've only got a short time here. And it's kind of the idea that the psalmist had. Psalms 90, apply your heart to wisdom by counting your days. When you count your days, you apply your heart to wisdom because when you're mindful that you don't have an endless number of days, you don't know how many days you have, it changes the way you live from day to day. Every person ought to have a little healthy obsession with death because death clarifies life. He says, Jesus is coming back. You have a purpose, so live your life with purpose. Get up every day and know that Jesus is coming back. He spoke purpose over you. Get busy showing kindness. Get busy inviting people to faith. Do something with your life. Accomplish something with your life. Don't get consumed with making a living and not even a great living, but spend your life making a difference for good. Because when you do, when you live life with purpose, that's joy. Because his idea is this, don't expect to live with joy when you don't live with purpose. And again, this is so practical. These are strategies that every single one of us can implement on any given day of our life if we just carve out a little bit of time to choose joy. Because when you choose purpose, your life will come alive. When you know that your life has a purpose, your job will have brand new significance no matter what your job is. It's gonna be the fire in your soul. When you know that God made you for a purpose, with a purpose, that's when you begin to live life with a brand new intentionality. And when you live it with purpose and intention, all of a sudden you feel a brand new sense of joy down in your soul. So Paul keeps going. He says this, don't worry about anything. Again, he's just from one thing to the other. He's saying, I'm giving you everything that I can give you in the end of this letter to let you know how to have joy. He says, don't worry about anything because worry it steals joy every single time. And his idea is that there's always something to worry about. Uh, worry is a mental cancer. It starts small and it continues to grow and grow and grow. It feeds on fear, it breeds more fear, it plagues our thoughts, it blinds our perspective. It, it really, in the New Testament, the word, the word worry means to choke. It chokes out our faith, it chokes out grace, it chokes out joy, it chokes out purpose. It, it, it chokes out all the good when you give yourself over to worry. It, it preoccupies us, it, it distracts us, it drains us of energy. When we're worrisome, we can never be present. We're always distant. We're in the conversation, but not really. We're in the room, but not really. It, it affects us physically, it affects our blood pressure, our heart, it affects digestion, it affects so much of uh, the systems in our body. It affects us spiritually because it's at war with our faith. Worry, is the unspoken belief that God won't take care of us. That's what worry is. And this is why Paul's talking about it because this unspoken belief that God won't take care of us, it assassinates joy. It crushes joy, it chokes it out every single time. This belief that God won't get it right, this, this belief that God is not working things out for my good, this belief that believes that I don't matter to him. Uh, Jesus in his very first sermon said, don't worry about your life. Look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers of the field. You're more valuable than those birds to God. You're more valuable to God than the flowers of the field. God knows and God cares. 
God knows about you. God knows about your circumstance. God cares about how you feel. God knows and God cares. What else do we really need to know if that's true? If it's true that God knows and God cares, that's really the solution to worry. I don't need to worry about it because God knows. And not only does he know, but he cares and he's got a plan and it's for my good. So don't let worry choke out joy in your life. Don't worry about anything, Paul would say. Instead, instead of worrying, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. And again, this is bottom shelf. This is not super duper spiritual stuff. You don't have to know the Bible to do these things, to show kindness. You don't need to know anything to show kindness. Anybody can show kindness, so anybody can have joy. Don't worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Anybody can do that. You don't have to pray in King James, oh, heavenly father, I beseechest thou on thy thronest in heaven. Would you hear us thou, thy humblest servant? That No, just talk to God. Just carve out a little bit of time of your day to talk to God and tell him what you need. So well, that sounds selfish, it feels selfish. No, that's what Paul said we're supposed to do. Jesus said he already knows what you need, Matthew 6 verse eight. And get honest with God and just tell God, God, this is what's going on. This is what I'm worried about. This is how I feel. This is why I'm so frustrated. God, you just don't understand. When I see that face, when I hear that voice, some of this stuff, God, if I could put my hands on a neck, God, I am worried about how angry I am, how frustrated I am. Just tell him, get it out. He can take it. Don't worry about anything but pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Listen, if it matters to you, it matters to God because you matter to God. There's nothing off limits that you can't talk to God about. When you can't talk to anybody else, you can talk to God about it and getting it out there. Paul would say, it's gonna make you feel better. It's gonna get you one step closer to joy. So here, here's what I encourage you to do. I encourage every person to have a prayer list. Every person have a prayer list, either on your phone, in your notes app, whether you have a, a journal or a book at home or a notebook. I, I've got mine. This was, this was mine from, from this week. Have a prayer list. Have some things that you're writing down. Have some things that you're praying about. Have some things and have some people that you're praying about and just get it out there. Some of the things that are frustrating you, making you angry, some of the things that just, you know, just absolutely are getting the best of you, just put it on a list and give it to God. That's how we cast our cares on God. Just tell it to him. Don't worry about anything, but pray about it. That's Paul's advice. That's how you have joy. And anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. You can spend a few minutes of your day just talking to God. So, you know, it's never a whole lot of fun. Again, you, sometimes you gotta push through before you get to the place where you enjoy it. And it doesn't have to be 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes. Quit telling yourself that you're not doing it right. Quit telling yourself that you failed at the end of it. He knows your heart. He knows what you wanna talk about. So just talk to him about it and move on. He didn't say spend X amount of minutes doing it. He didn't say do it at this place or in that hour. Do it early, do it late, do it middle of the day, doesn't matter. Just talk to God. He says you're gonna be a step closer to joy. Here, here, here's his message. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. Let's all just say that out loud because that's pretty good. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. One more time. Worry about nothing, pray about everything. That, that's Paul's motto. He said you want joy? 
Worry about nothing. Okay, how do I worry about nothing? Pray about everything. Just, just cast it on God. Give it to God. And then he takes it a step further and he says, okay, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything and tell God what you need and then thank him for all that he's done. He says, okay, everybody needs two lists. Everybody needs a prayer list and everybody needs a list of things they can be grateful for. Because being grateful is a step towards becoming joyful. Uh, I've, got my, I've got my gratitude list. I have my gratitude list that I worked on yesterday. And some days it's longer than others. Some days it's the same thing. Some days it's different things. But here, here's why you need gratitude as part of the daily rhythm of your life. You need a time in your life. I need a time in my life where I sit down and I think about the good in my life. It forces me to stop. It forces me to think. It forces me to identify good. And then once I identify good, I can celebrate it. But if I don't pause to think about good and to look for good and identify the good, I'll never celebrate the good. And if we never celebrate the good in our life, our life will consistently be absent of joy. Again, this is as practical as we could possibly want. This is as bottom shelf as we could possibly ask for. Just spend a little time and list some things that you're thankful for every single day. Look for the good, identify it, and then celebrate it and feel good about it. Grateful people are seldom resentful. Grateful people are seldom bitter. Grateful people always have joy. So spend some time, have a prayer list, have a gratitude list. And he says, if you do these things, then, then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And th this is so interesting. Paul's message kind of caught me off guard and I never had ever thought about it this way before. Joy is commanded, but peace is promised. He commands us to have joy. He calls us to choose joy. And he says, if you will have joy, if you will do the things that result in joy, you'll have joy. And if you choose joy, God promises you peace. A peace that when the world falls apart, you won't. A peace that protects your heart and mind so that people will not put ideas and thoughts and emotions won't invade your heart and mind that causes you to lose your joy or your peace. He says, if you'll choose joy, you'll get peace in the deal as well. And then he wraps it up and he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. He says, you have to take responsibility for your thinking because if you take responsibility for your thinking, you could then begin to take responsibility for your emotions. But you'll never be able to fully take responsibility of how you feel unless you first take responsibility for how you think. And so Paul introduces us to an idea that a lot of us don't think about. We can think about what we want to think about. You don't have to chase that thought. I don't have to chase that thought. I don't have to dwell on it. I don't have to allow it to linger. I don't have to marinate on it. I don't have to feed it. I don't have to pet it. I don't have to coddle it. I can change 
what I don't need to think about and think about what's best for me to think about, the things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent. This may require me to rethink how I spend my time on social media. This may require me to rethink how much television I'm consuming. This may require me to rethink some things so that I can make sure I'm micromanaging my thoughts. Because if I don't micromanage my thoughts, it's gonna undermine joy and it's gonna undermine peace in my life. Paul says, take responsibility for your thinking so you can begin to take responsibility for how you're feeling because how you're feeling is connected to how you're thinking. So take responsibility for it. And when you begin to think something that's undermining your peace and joy, switch it off. Think about something else. Fill the gap in with what's true and noble and right and lovely and admirable and praiseworthy. He says, you can do that. Any of us can do that. He says, control your thinking and you'll shape your feelings. That's what you can do, that's what I can do. And then he wraps it up, he says, whatever you have heard, learned, or received from me, or seen from me, put into practice. Paul says, I've written you a letter, you saw this in me when I was put in prison, when I was in Philippi, you, you, you've seen this in me, you, you've heard what I've said, so I want you to do what I've said, I want you to do what you've seen in me. And Paul once again says, what have you seen, what have you heard, be kind. Want joy, be kind. Don't worry. And don't worry, pray. Be grateful. Have a list of things you're always grateful for every single day. Manage your thinking. Make sure your thoughts are not heading in the wrong direction and have good people in your life and in your corner. People that helps you live life, love life, and celebrate life. He said, if you'll do these things, I promise you, it's foolproof. You can have joy. And if you'll do these things and put them into practice, he says, the God of peace will be with you. You'll not only get joy, but you'll get peace because peace is promised to those who choose to live life with joy. Do you know what New Testament spirituality is? New Testament spirituality is love, joy, and peace because those are the values and the culture of the kingdom of God, Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is love, joy, and peace. That if you wanna know what true spirituality looks like in the days that we live, it's love, it's joy, and it's peace. And that's what Paul's offering us. He's offering us what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like, what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. People who choose joy, lay hold of joy, refuse to let go of it. And in holding on to joy, they also get peace. A peace that passes understanding. A peace that allows us to smile in the midst of pain, to laugh even in the midst of tears in our eyes. Joy and peace that's impervious to life's hardest and darkest moments. That's what you want. And right now, that's what we all need. I don't know what your next week looks like. I don't know what next month looks like. I don't know what this fall looks like. I don't know what it means for you. I don't know what it means for me. I don't know what the bad news is or the good news is. I don't know which, things, ways are, you know, which way things are gonna go. But I do know the thing that we all need and the thing we all want is joy. And we can do something about that. And he says, if we'll do something about it, God will give us peace on top of it. A joy and a peace that sometimes we can't articulate, but we know when we see it. For me, I saw it a few weeks ago. Uh, back in August, I was asked to do the funeral of an infant, 20 plus weeks old, uh, uh, a twin. Uh, one sister didn't make it, the other did. And I, I did the funeral. 
and went to Manchester and uh, Carrie and Ryan, it was their little baby and Matt who helped to lead us in worship today. It was his father-in-law's granddaughter. And I had never been to the funeral of an infant in all of my life and all of my ministry. And I remember walking into the funeral home in Manchester and looking at the front of that funeral home and seeing that little white casket and thinking to myself, caskets shouldn't come this small. And we shed tears and you just never know what to say or, and in these days, hugging's challenging and it's hard to comfort when you can't touch. And so we left there and we went to the funeral, which was gonna be at the graveside. And, and Dennis Cotton, who's been in our church for some years, and many of you would know him if you saw him. And usually he sits in the early service and he sits right there this morning. He was over there with his family. And I, I'd always admired him from afar. I, I didn't really know him that well, but I could hear him. Sometimes he would amen. And I, I love anybody that'll amen me. And I'm pretty easily won over. And, and he was always the, the sweetest guy and his wife. Uh, Terry was always just smiling and and so we went to the funeral and we were there at the graveside and there were, there were tons of people there. And, and Dennis came up and said, I'm gonna say a few words. And I was thinking to myself, I don't even know how you're gonna, how you're gonna do this. And he got up and I'd never been so mesmerized my entire life at the grace of God in front of me, such joy and such peace this granddad who was, was bound and determined. Somebody was bragging on his little granddaughter and he had this little pouch and he, he pulled out of this pouch this, what he called the beads of courage. And it was about 22, 23 feet long. And there were all these different colors of beads on it. And there was a, a color bead for every day that she was in the hospital and every, every breathing treatment that kid had had. And, and every time that she had been poked and every time she had been CT scanned and every time that someone had come in and done this. And there were all of these, all of these beads and he just kept pulling it out. And he was saying, you know, the plan was to give it to her little grandbaby when she got out of the hospital, but that's, that's not happening. And, and he talked about the hope that we have in Christ and he talked about the life and the world to come. And I just, I just, I, I thought to myself, this, this is it. This is the worst and the darkest moment of life. And look at this family. That's what you call peace. And that's what you call joy in the midst. of One of those moments you won't have nothing to do with it. That's what we all want. But that doesn't happen by accident. We choose joy. And we predecide joy before we ever get to the graveside. We predecide joy before we ever get to the hospital. We predecide joy before hell breaks loose. And when we choose joy, God gives peace in the hardest of moments. And that's what we want. And that's what we need. And that's what I'm praying for you. And that's what I want you to pray for me. Heavenly Father. God, we've spent seven weeks talking about joy. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you, you would drive everything that we've talked about deep down into our heart and our soul. I pray today that we, we will decide and we will dedicate our life to choosing joy, to doing those small, intentional things that can bring joy by showing kindness and spending a little bit of our day talking to you to stop and to think about the things that we can be grateful for. 
to do the things that you've encouraged us to do, to have good friends in our life that follow Jesus, that help us to follow Jesus. God, let us be a people of joy in in a world, God, that has very little joy. Let us be a people of peace when our cities are filled with unrest and violence. And God, let us be a church, God, that shows light in the darkest hour. Let them see us that they may glorify you. God, speak to us in this moment as we listen to the words of this song. Holy Spirit, let us today decide never again will we live our life without joy. Let it begin today in every heart. In Jesus' name.